3: A cap, bottle cap, yeah.
1: Okay. What are you drinking?
3: Uh, something bougie from a gas station. <laughs> oh, delightful. Yeah, I was just saying, I sent Will pictures of what in the past week: dogs on surfboard, beer, yep. and, uh, fat ma beer, and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, I just I bought this at the gas station. Yeah, it's you were branching
2: famous. out, so you had to go with the four loco next, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> and then we have our storyteller today will the thrill hey everybody
3: oh nice so yeah. what do you have this is the alien nation honey blonde ale okay yeah you, you mentioned that one to me earlier today it is a oh, good, or perhaps yesterday
2: yes it is a good summer afternoon beer again it's very nice. crisp and light so you can go with any barbecue fare. but it's <laughs> going to go with our podcast fair this evening
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. I just ate some leftover ribs, so it's very much like a barbecue.
2: Yeah, we're just continuing Memorial Day. Exactly. So LD is going to take a bit of a backseat on this one. Unfortunately, she has some mouth issues, um, which will hopefully be solved soon. So she may emote, but uh, I think it's going to be pretty much uh, Will the Thrill and TJ2 carrying episode three of Whitney Houston.
3: Yes, uh, she will occasionally groan painfully in the background.
2: Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) So uh, we do have some sad announcements this week. We did lose some talent, as many of you know. Uh, One of them was, of course, the singer and songwriter Hall of Fame inductee for the Grammys, BJ Thomas.
3: Yeah, Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I think uh, he's probably best known for, he he had a ton of hits, actually. But I would say his best known hit probably, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Mm, that's the one Mm -hmm. yeah but but now he had and i I don't know if this is still a record at one point he had the record for the top 40 song with the longest title in history
2: which raindrops keep falling
3: on my head (laughs) uh no with hey won't you play another somebody done somebody wrong song wow (laughs) that's
2: up there with what is the song standing outside
3: a phone booth with Mm. yeah Quarters in the no, nope, nope.
1: shut up. I this. <laughs> standing outside a broken telephone booth with money in, in my, my hand, with money
2: in my hand by uh, not the new radicals. I can't remember who that was.
3: That the, that guy, the one,
2: you know, yeah.
1: that
3: was his many, many hit.
2: Jesus. That was the medley of his many
1: radio. Hit. God, you dip. That's what it was.
3: Didn't they rip, didn't they rip um, baby King on that song?
2: Well, yes. did he get,
3: didn't he end up getting most of the money for that.
2: yeah he's got the vocals in the background that you hear basically throughout the entire thing
3: that make the song essentially but anyway um, yeah but BJ Thomas very talented singer and songwriter and you know, again a guy who had a, a, a ton of hits and including what I, I believe may still be the longest uh, top 40 song title ever and then we, 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 had, we lost somebody else Will who yeah. if you just say the name people <laughs> people probably don't know who they are But I promise that you would recognize their voice. Absolutely. And that is? Uh, That would be John Davis. Very commonplace name. Very common name, but uh, very uncommon talent. If you've ever listened to Girl You Know It's True, (laughs) Don't Forget My Number, Blame It on the Rain, then you know the voice of John Davis. He was one of the actual singers of Milli Vanilli's hits. Uh, not Fab and Rob who are dancing and lip syncing poorly yeah. <laughs> up front. We might um, add. Yeah. He was actually the, the, one of the voices that you heard. And uh, I was, I didn't, I don't think I knew this. I think was a native South Carolinian. Was he really? Um, went to, to um, I believe Westside high school over in Greenville County, but Good. you know, it's odd. When, when the, 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 and I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, Will. You might. Uh, the Stingali who sort of put that whole project together, the producer. Ah, oh, no, I don't. I'm going to have to look that up. But he, um, my understanding was always that, well, the, the actual musicians were middle aged and maybe weren't that telegenic. Given what his age is uh, or was, you know, when he very sadly died a few days ago, he would have only been in his early 30s then. So he wasn't no. old.
2: Well, when he passed away, he was only 66, so.
3: And you got to think that was 1989, that's 32 years ago? Yeah, give or take. So he was in his mid-30s. He wasn't old.
2: No, not by any stretch of the imagination.
3: Yeah, but that, that, that's somebody who, who probably shouldn't be forgotten because his work won a Grammy um, <laughs> did. for Best New Artist. And, I mean, that—that's they were a phenomenon. That album it was, was mammoth.
2: Are you referring to Frank Farian? As the
3: yes yes right yeah. Yeah.
2: and then we had a, another loss sadly closer to home to for LD and this one was a gentleman from San Antonio Texas his name was Glenn Douglas Tubb mm-hmm. we lost him this week as well
1: I, I will come out of my pain to say that um, I have been friends with Dottie Tub. my mother has been friends with her for years uh, they were a staple in the Nashville scene. And he actually uh, did. Uh, he wrote for Johnny Cash. He wrote for George Jones, Tammy Wynette. He he wrote Skipper wrote Two Story House. He he did a ton of music. And I've known that family for years. My condolences go out to Dottie, who I've probably known since I was maybe ten, and yeah. It's about yeah, almost almost thirty. I- five years i I
3: would i would say that if you're a songwriter and on the uh on your resume under people who've cut my songs you have cash and straight yeah i'd say i'd say say you're doing pretty good yeah
1: yeah but he will be missed he was this great guy he looked like santa claus (laughs) um you know i never got the pleasure of meeting him but you know knowing Dottie for most of my life Anyone that was associated with her is good people to me. So he's good people and he will be missed. And he was insanely talented. Now I'm going to go back into my canker hole.
3: (laughs) I've been in a canker hole before. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) All right. So we're, I was going to say, so we're, we're getting back into our heavy hitter series now. Uh, This is going to be part three of the the great Whitney Houston. Absolutely. Um, I want to say uh, in part two, Will the Thrill, we got to debut album. I think we got as as far as her debut album. Yeah, we got up to
2: that. So we're going to go into the following year, which is the year, a simpler time, 1986. And it's going to be interesting because this span of this episode, just warning here, only covers about four or five years, but what of four or five years it's going to be. So let's jump right back in to Whitney Elizabeth Houston. And as you said, TJ, when last we left, she had a hit debut album, the likes of which have not been seen since uh, 1986 would be a good year for the New York Mets fans of Stand By Me. And it wasn't the best year. This one's for you, L.D., for the people of Pripyat because we all know what happened early in that year, 1986.
1: They were running a test <laughs> on, okay, you know what? There's a great HBO series that doesn't cause as much pain as I'm in right now.
2: <laughs> yes, aptly entitled Chernobyl.
3: Go
1: watch Chernobyl. It's awesome. It is Oh, amazing. God, it's so good. Is
3: it, is it just me or does it sound like she's got the cane? Well, it's kind like she's of like she's fresh, I, like she's fresh yeah. out of the dentist and just had a tooth drilled.
2: It's mm-hmm. kind of like that. And the drops make it even number, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's difficult. Whitney is well on her way to becoming a global superstar. Now, as we talked about last week, and you remember this, TJ, she actually started as a model and then sort of moved out from a background singer role into a premier vocalist role uh she, right. she sang back up for shaka khan jermaine jackson teddy pendergrass and of course her famous mother sissy houston and for those of you who are going oh jermaine jackson jermaine jackson which you had pointed out DJ, he was coming off of the victory album tour so at this point he was at probably the height of his the
3: absolute height of his I, I, one thing that's, that's interesting that i've, I've, I've thought about uh, as i went back and listened to the first two episodes there's, there's a web of musical connections throughout her early life. You know, her Auntie Re, I mean, Aretha Franklin, yeah. her mother was a singer, her aunts were singers, her grandmas were singers, all stuff. There's a popular misconception that she's related to Thelma Houston, but she's not. That is correct.
2: Yes, not as far and as she
3: She does have a lengthy web of connections musically within her family, but that's not one of them that people think, she, that think exists, but it doesn't.
2: No, absolutely not. And what's interesting is if you hear Sissy Houston, there is a vocal similarity between her and her daughter, which is Mm -hmm. quite eerie in my opinion. Um, So yeah, and even her own mother, as we pointed out, was a vocalist and Whitney was her backup singer. And those roles are about to change in the year ahead. So by the time Whitney was only 18 years old, she had record companies out the door waiting to offer her a contract. But as we learned, that honor would eventually go to Mr. Clive Davis. He was the one who signed her to Arista Records. And he was really a mentor to her, building her up through basically touring and meeting all the people in the industry because Clive knew, let's be honest, just about everybody. Right. And really her career was, was just launching at this point. And so it seemed like she would be an overnight success when this 1985 album, Whitney Houston, came out. Little did we know that despite the fact that that album would go on to sell millions of copies and reach diamond status, It's probably this follow-up album that most people know Whitney Houston for. And again, her debut album is considered one of the best debut albums ever. But this next one is one I guarantee you all know songs from and can sing along And go on in the episode here. Now, she was bound for absolutely unthinkable success in music and film. So the reason I have this episode carving out this five-year period is because I think when we're going to end this, it's going to be the high point. This is the golden age, and we know what unfortunately happens in the early 90s. We're going to get to that, but this is really, I think, the point at which Whitney Houston was really on top of the world. So we take you back to that sweet, simple time of 1986, and she is, TJ, uses you use this analogy, and I think it's very apt. She was America's sweetheart. She was the good girl. Mm -hmm.
3: That's not an exaggeration. Uh, She was... (laughs) One of those people who was who was literally everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a massive crossover success with everybody. Yeah, I, I know who didn't who didn't like Whitney Houston in 1986. I mean, yeah, you were wrong if you didn't. She, right, and but she had she had an image that was very wholesome, very girl next doorish. I mean, if the girl next door was, you know, a model who could sing. Right, like, <laughs> <laughs> right, but yeah, it's it's not it's really not an exaggeration to say that she was. Kind of um, had the kind of America's sweetheart mantle in almost every sense. She really did.
2: Yeah, and, and not just sing. I mean, oh, that voice is just unmatched. I, it's probably one of the greatest of all time. I'm putting that out there right now. You heard it on the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast. Uh, Whitney was one of her quotes. As We all know she had very strong faith and she would say that I believe in God, the Almighty. My parents raised me in such a way that I don't do all the things that others around me do. So keep that in mind. Uh, she said prayer was a big part of her life that she could always anchor herself with god and resist any temptation so at this point you can see the eerie foreshadowing and where there are cracks in this foundation as we talked about way back in episode one which feels like a lifetime ago whitney took the divorce of her parents very personally and even though her father John, who was managing her career at this point and for the majority of her career until he passes away, he was really this major male figure in her life that let her down, and we'll see this pattern as we go through Whitney's entire life of sort of, you know, these men that she admires in some way, and they let her down, and it leads to utter collapse, and right now Clive has her under his wing, and so far everything's going well. Uh, We discussed earlier that some of the things Clive was saying might be perceived as creepy, but they were not. He was really sort of a father figure and a guide to Whitney during all of this. And things were going to get pretty stormy, honestly. By the fall of 86, Whitney was already booking shows across the world. She was playing in Europe, she was playing in Australia, she was working, she was doing concerts in the US, also entertaining roles in film and television. And many of those who were close to her said this was the first time they could see her starting to get a little bit frayed. She was, quote, burning the candle at both ends. And, of course, there were the rumors that I know, LD, this gets to you about her alleged sexuality. Uh, She was asked whether or not she was a role model, and Whitney was the first to discard that belief. They believe she had a strong foundation, and uh, her mother Sissy always impressed on her how brutal the music industry was. But no one could really prepare her for the way the press would kind of pry into her personal life.
3: And I wonder if it's because she was so beloved, and and again, it, outwardly she's so pretty, and she's so talented, and she seemed like such she seemed like such a nice person, and all all the sort of thing that she kind of managed to skate on the I'm not a role model line whereas Charles Barkley who said the exact same thing did not
2: <laughs> correct
3: <laughs> who caught a mountain of crap over saying saying that back in the what late 80s early 90s I think
2: yeah I was gonna say it's about this no a little bit after this time period we're in 1986 right now so I think a few years yeah. no I do remember that uh, one of the musicians that worked with her a gentleman by the name of Bashiri Johnson who on the surface may not be a name you know he's a New York based percussionist and he worked with of course Whitney Houston but I'll throw out a few other names that may strike a chord with you uh miles davis Patti labelle al geroux aretha franklin herbie hancock michael jackson and one of your favorites tj
3: steve winwood No, oh, so some some sort of off the radar obscure artists um yeah <laughs> D- digging yeah. into yeah. Yeah, I mean, just, yeah just michael jackson and uh herbie hancock and miles davis and uh steve winwood
2: yeah but but if i and Patti labelle and aretha franklin but yeah nobody you've heard of
3: but nobody you've ever heard of
2: really yeah he <laughs> says nah. Uh, During this time, Johnson actually was working close with her said, I think she's handling it very well. It's not overwhelming. For one thing, she takes very good care of her health. She doesn't have any vices like other musicians. Her schedule may be a bit demanding, but I think she's learning to pace herself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about you, but if you hear comments like that of people close to you, it almost feels like they're trying to... They're like, no, 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 no. Everything's fine. You know? Don't worry. Well, we... We're gonna worry a little bit. That very year, Rolling Stone actually called the Whitney Houston album the best album of the year. Bravo. Yes. Yeah. And like I said earlier, her second album is probably more well known. I, I guarantee you, you can all picture the album cover right now. It's Whitney Houston in the white, yep, in the white tank top. Yep. Looking, yeah, with the hair pulled back. Yeah, you. You all know
3: it that way. Kind of sold her slightly askew. and Uh-huh. uh-huh.
2: <laughs> very, very 1980s. Very right. 1980s. Uh, and this is a time where most musicians go into the dreaded sophomore slump. But again, Whitney was already defying all the odds, so she's going to just keep going in that direction. She went back into the studio to create her follow-up record to the smash debut album. At this point, Whitney even said she was a little bit more comfortable with the process, that she liked the people she worked with, and they were sort of, you know finding their groove together. We saw a lot of the top producers from that first album. Um, Narada, Michael Walden was a big one. He just keeps coming back. Michael Masser, who we discussed. Uh, Clive Davis was, of course, heavily involved in the process. And he actually brought in a notable Broadway songwriter, Tim Rice. Yeah.
1: Tim Rice helped with The Lion King and Aida. He worked a lot with Elton John. Yes, he was a big Broadway guy. Even hey, he hey
3: um, well, uh, can I have a quick aside? Mm. Do you remember the uh, the the uh, the Got Milk campaign? Yes, can I Can we possibly get LD to try to say Aaron Burr? <laughs> uh, uh, she's actually
2: flipping you off. <laughs> Aaron Burr! <laughs> God, what a great campaign! <laughs> so The interesting thing about this album, now, if you remember, back when the first album was being released, Clive was really marketing Whitney Houston as an R&B artist. He said, we're going to appeal to the Black audience first, and then sort of
3: cross over. So that was the goal. And and primed the pump for like two years before her album even came out. I know. After after signing
2: her. Quarter of a million dollars in promos, uh, and then two years later. But again, he ran the label, so who's going to tell him no? Right. Yeah. So the first album was constructed as really an r&b album the second one which is just titled whitney is going to be a pop album sure it's going to have r&b elements and we're going to discuss those in a minute but i would say this is the one that most people know because it was so prevalent on the pop it was
3: this was this was a pure r&b pop candy gold yeah you couldn't avoid every every track is just magic it is
2: I mean, we, we entertained the Want to Dance, I Want to Dance with Somebody last week. There's Didn't We Almost Have It All, Where Do Broken Hearts Go, You're Still My Man, so emotional. The list is just, it's ridiculous um, how many hits came off of this album. Now, the interesting thing is I'm not going to share any of those songs with you. I'm going to go in a different direction here. In fact, I'm going to highlight one of the tracks on there that is a mother-daughter duet. Oh. That- I wish LD was here. She stepped away. But uh, this one was actually featured in the musical Chess. It was written for that musical. No, it's not Murray Head, so don't get too excited there. But this was a, a Tim Rice joint. Uh, the original song was actually written about two women who learned that they're having an affair with the same man. So the subject matter was slightly switched, of course, when uh, Whitney and Sissy took it over. And the stance they took was actually about john houston so sissy sort of sang from the perspective of a, a wife and whitney from the perspective of a daughter and so the song actually was sort of reinvented it took on a whole new meaning
3: because otherwise it, it would have been like reenacting the early life of rick james yeah we're not going
2: to go there <laughs> not, we already did that with the rick james thing. yeah we did that
3: one already yeah
2: so actually i'm going to share this one penned by tim rice it's from the broadway musical chess included on the whitney album from 1987 here's sissy and Whitney Houston with I Know Him So Well. And we're back. All right. Clear, clearly a Broadway feel to that one.
3: Yeah. It, it does. It, it definitely stands out of, uh, amongst the rest of the offerings on that album, for sure. Oh, absolutely.
1: So, can I, can I weigh in? Of course. It is very much a Tim Rice joint, mm-hmm. because if you know anything about Aida, that is written in the stars, That that's... Oh, it's The song Written in the Stars just sounds like a reworking, work version of I Know Him So Well, so... It doesn't shock me. And
2: can you feel the love tonight? Almost has that same kind of cadence to it. Yep. Well, Tim Rice, I mean, he wrote a lot of hits. So can't deny that. God
1: knew what
2: he was doing. So as I mentioned earlier, the song was reworked to really be about the mother and daughter singing about, you know, John Houston, the father and the husband they both knew in different ways. Some actually speculated also this was a bit of a nod to Clive Davis, who also worked with both knew both women and worked with them, and they had you know a professional relationship with him so just before the release of her second album just titled Whitney she was actually breaking more records because she just did that throughout the 80s the American Music Awards took place in late January of 1987 where Whitney took count them five five awards best pop female vocalist best R&B female LP favorite R&B female album best female r and artist, and favorite r and female video. So she took home five AMAs that year. Pretty impressive. The album was finally released in June of 1987. And it's probably, like I said, the one you know the most. I must admit, I went in an unconventional direction with that track, but you guys know the songs. I don't think I, I mean, I play them, that's fine. But you really know the songs on that album. Now, the critics came in with a very... I would say common review of Whitney Houston at this point, which all can be summed up with mediocre songs, outstanding voice. In fact, it was John Parles of the New York Times who said, she's singing by formulas. Her producers or Miss Houston herself has the confidence in the voice. Instead of finding material to reveal her individuality on both albums, Miss Houston is submitting to conventional pop formulas. So,
3: ouch. Um- yeah, damning with Saint praise, kind of. Yeah, it, it, this this almost goes back to our Eddie Van Halen series, if you remember, mm-hmm. when they they apparently were going to audition Eric Martin, mm. who who went on to sing with Mr. Big. They ended up choosing Sammy, but he had just put out a solo album, and Eddie uh, essentially told him he wanted to audition him, audition him, and by way of saying, you know, your album completely sucks, but you've got a really good voice. <laughs> oh um El, this is. It, oh go ahead no no i was just going to say it's it's very similar it's like but i i kind of don't i don't hear what they're hearing do they sort of stay in their lane of the kind of pop r&b stuff yeah mm-hmm. but so what yeah if it works it works you know <laughs> it works and they're they're good i mean they're undeniably catchy good songs like what would they like her to What like what is it they were suggesting that she sang that's a good question and again i i think
2: when you look at the production team around Whitney they knew what was going to work for her so yeah it was sort of a perfect storm
3: well yeah maybe you should sing about uh, people clubbing baby seals Whitney you yeah, know get <laughs> involved right. in some uh shake it up, up a be uplifting but yeah it's almost like well what well perhaps you should tackle some more weighty subjects because I'm trying to think of the 80s so like yes Whitney write a song about the Exxon, Exxon valdez <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that'd be that'd be that'd be just pop candy gold the war for, on for drugs
2: yeah, following the footsteps of Gordon Lightfoot.
1: The, the gas crisis, let's say, Chernobyl, uh, Joe Theismann.
2: Oh, the, the Challenger.
1: The Challenger yeah. in January. Let's see, when did Joe Theismann get his leg kicked out?
3: Was that 86, DJ? It was about 86-ish. Yeah, right around 86. Yeah, mm-hmm. when Lawrence Taylor made did his leg The
1: yeah, Iran-Contra crisis, the hostage situation. Why aren't you covering those, Whitney? Come yeah. on. What do you want? Like, I got all, I got, I know everything terrible about the You know, all the the Lockerbie bombing,
2: right? Wasn't the Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that was, that was Pan Am Flight 103. Flight 103. Thank you. Nice.
2: (laughs) So the Whitney album actually became the first album ever by a female artist to debut at number one on the Billboard chart. So there's your fun fact for you. Fun fact! There you go. Uh, Now, now, keep in mind, she's the first woman to achieve this. There are only three other artists at that point who had earned that distinction. The first one was Elton John with his Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy album, 1975. The other two artists who had done it by this point were Bruce Springsteen and Stevie Wonder. Uh, uh, uh. What? Yeah. Which one do you know, Stevie?
4: Stevie?
2: Yeah, Stevie. So you got Elton, Bruce, Stevie, and now Whitney Houston. Now bear in mind that we saw two songs that from the same band that hit number one on the Billboard 100, one in 1964, one in 1977. They didn't debut at number one. However, both Do-Wah Diddy Diddy and Blinded by the Light would get there eventually, and those songs are both from Manfred Mann's Earth Band.
3: (laughs) There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Our federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earth Band reference of the podcast has been satisfied. Check. Thank
2: you, Manfred, Mansworth, man Man's Earth
3: Band. Okay. Hate to interrupt there, Will the Thrill, but we are going to have to take a break to hear from some of our sponsors. We're going to do that, and we'll be right back to hear more about the life and times of Whitney Houston. And we're back.
2: Thank you, TJ. Let's get back to Whitney Houston. Now, uh, Whitney was also lauded as the first artist hit number one on both the U.S. and U.K. charts at the same time. The most notable hit on her album was, of course... I Want to Dance with Somebody, and that reached number one in the US, Australia, Germany, and the UK. The album would eventually go on to sell over
3: 20 million copies worldwide. Yeah. Thus thus proving an old adage to be true. Which one? Germans love Whitney
2: Houston. They really do. It's crazy. You, You see all these songs and singles, they all chart in Germany. They loved Whitney. It's crazy. Yes. (laughs) The week, yes. <laughs> the week the album was released, the single I Want to Dance with Somebody had actually hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. That was Whitney's fifth consecutive number one single. Now, keep in mind that put her in a very close race. Five consecutive number ones tied her with the Supremes, Elvis and the Bee Gees, which meant only one musical act had six at that time. And he guesses as to which one that might be beatles the beatles yes
3: have to be the beatles.
2: so keep that record in mind because now whitney is again she's tied with the supremes elvis and the Bee Gees, and she's one behind the beatles so file that one away and at this point you're gonna think it's nuts she's only 23 mm. wow 23
1: so when when you look back at your life <laughs> right what have i done don't you go crap
3: i do that anyway <laughs>
1: except for marrying me yeah that was awesome yeah that's a bright spot pretty good
3: the uh yeah i'm sitting there see what like 23 what was i doing um not having five concept consecutive number one billboard hits or being productive in any way
2: i think i was throwing up in an alley behind the lava lounge
3: yeah i was gonna say i think i I was yakking off my porch having just downed a, a bottle of Bad gas station, orange juice mixed with Nikolov 100 vodka.
1: Okay, well, you know what I was doing at Ouch. 23, you jerks? I was actually winning an Emmy for Best Ensemble on the Chappelle Show. So, so. Oh,
2: that's right. You were. So I guess, I guess uh, the verdict is in, TJ. You and I. Well, I, I had,
3: uh, yeah, well, uh, by the time I was 23, I had won first place in a coloring contest at the Roses Cafeteria. <laughs> and you came in second, second. S- <laughs> suck it hurt mouth <laughs> you can't you can't because your mouth hurts
4: yeah
2: <laughs> so Whitney at age 23 is now up there with the likes of Madonna Tina Turner and Cyndi Lauper which by the way she beat in album sales all of those artists now now imagine oh. you have to think Cyndi Lauper in the 80s yeah I mean and again, Tina Turner and Madonna need no explanation. They were they yeah. never left. Uh, she was also distancing herself from her family as far as sales, which was, of course, Sissy, Dee Dee, and Dion. So she was really becoming the biggest star in the Houston household.
3: Yeah, when she, I, was, she, was there, she was there by this time.
2: Oh, yeah, she had arrived. When asked about being a, quote, manufactured star, as they were saying in the press, uh, Whitney actually gave an interview with Time magazine in which – she said, they didn't have to make me over. There would be no Whitney Houston without Whitney Houston. So she's quite, uh, quite proud of herself there, and justifiably mm-hmm. so. Now we, we shift over to Robin Crawford. As we know, Robin was a close friend of Whitney's. There was an alleged relationship. The memoir goes into more details. For anyone who wants more on that subject, you can certainly read A Song for You, My Life with Whitney Houston, which came out
3: after Whitney's death. Read all about it at your local library.
2: Yeah, reading is fundamental. Um, It was public knowledge that Crawford was actually Whitney's live-in personal assistant. Uh, In the summer of 1987, both of them were actually deflecting rumors about having a intimate relationship. In public, Houston would make statements ranging from things like, why do you want to know everything, to the more jersey if you don't understand our relationship, F you. So she was uh, addressing this on all fronts, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, Now, this was leading to an inherent conflict with Whitney's mother. Some say the rift really began in 1987 when Whitney actually purchased a multi-million dollar estate just 30 miles away from the family home. The estate was in Mendham Township, New Jersey, and she didn't tell her mother. Now, why would she? I don't know. It's her money. But apparently Sissy took offense to this. Sissy was convinced that her relationship with Robin was, quote, unhealthy, end quote, and that it was just a matter of time before she found the right person to marry. Yeesh. Amidst all of this, Clive Davis is actively working on Whitney's career and trying to take her to even the next level. When the Whitney album came out, Arista Records actually entered a partnership with TriStar Pictures. Now, you might wonder how this happened. Well, if you remember, Clive worked for CBS, which went to Columbia, which was associated with Sony, and they own TriStar Pictures. So yeah, there's a very convoluted route there, but uh, obviously there was a link up there. And at this point, TriStar was known for films like The Natural with Robert Redford, and Where the Boys Are with George Hamilton and Connie Francis. The company would eventually become part of Columbia Pictures, this would be at the end of 1987, and distribute films. However, those of us who know Whitney's career would see her real launch in the next decade under a different studio altogether. But still, at this point, there were talks about Whitney starring in several films for TriStar. By the end of that year, 1987, there had been over 10 million copies of the Whitney album sold. Hmm. It had six number one singles and her annual earnings, this will blow your mind, surpassed Michael Jackson. Ooh. So I'm going to say that again. Wow. In 1987, Whitney Houston, this is according to an article in the New York Daily News, had out-earned the King of Pop.
3: That's pretty crazy. because you, you, you think about the Michael Jackson in the 1980s, you almost can't imagine anything bigger than that.
2: No, absolutely not. But that year, she she beat him out, which is amazing. Well,
3: wow. so this would have be- been right around the time, um, and I mean, this is not... It's not like he, he had an off year or something. Would this not be around the time Bad came out? Yeah, this is
2: 1987, so. Yeah, so. He was blazing at this point. Jeez. We flash forward to March of 1988, the Grammy Awards. And by that time, Whitney had already taken home two more AMAs, even before the Grammys happened, because typically those happen earlier in the year. And she also took home a Grammy for Best Female Pop Performance. Now, I've mentioned the song so many times, I have to play it. I'm going to play it. It's a very well-known track off the Whitney album. You had mentioned it, TJ. I think it's a little song we can all bop our heads to. Here is the 1987 classic from Whitney Houston, I Get So Emotional.
3: and we're back all right fun times i yeah. could uh, i'm just trying to i'm sitting there listening to it and i'm like and so critics didn't like that what yeah
2: it's and again it's it's a pop album and you know it's like right. it's not back.
3: like you're right it's not like she's tracy chapman yeah i, I love tracy chapman right but i mean that's it's, it's they're two different styles of music absolutely yeah and again yes, i mean when was singing not was singing not was singing good pop songs and there's is, nothing wrong with that
2: absolutely
3: And Tracy Chapman sang about, you know, poor people.
2: Yes, she did. I love Tracy Chapman. I think she's great. Uh, So at the Soul Train Awards on March 30th, 1988, Whitney actually won Female Album of the Year. And she achieved, this is very interesting. She was the highest earning woman of color from 1986. Now, keep that in mind when you consider that she was the third highest black entertainer behind Bill Cosby and Eddie Murphy. Now we all know that,
3: that list hits a little different now doesn't it
2: It does but again think of that time and how popular these guys were in the 1980s. Eddie Murphy was I mean beyond reproach no oh,
3: he was yeah. he was he was he was it yeah there was nobody bigger than him and
2: Cosby was still TV dad Cliff <laughs> Huxtable yep. but and,
3: and you know, Eddie Murphy was the biggest star in the universe and uh, yep. Dr. Huxtable was a giant perv
2: <laughs> We just didn't know it yeah oh boy. Let's talk more about Eddie Murphy, shall we? Uh, Whitney actually got very tired of the sexuality rumors, so she basically went through the Hollywood phone book and was like, "Uh, you, let's go out. And she actually would seek out celebrity men to be seen around town with, and one of them was Eddie Murphy. Wow! So she would go out with Eddie Murphy a few times. Uh, She also made appearances with, you're going to love this list, TJ, Daryl Strawberry. Wow. Arsenio Hall. Okay. And this is my personal favorite, Randall Cunningham. Wow.
3: Yeah. Now, if you hear, now, the- I had forgot. I rem- I remembered that she dated Straw and mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy. Yeah, I yeah. don't think I knew that she dated Randall Cunningham.
2: She did. Now it's interesting that you say it because you are a member of. You're a journalist. Of all of those names, which one are you going to press information on?
3: I, I mean, I want more about Randall Cunningham, okay, personally. But I'm, but, I'm, but, I'm a, but I'm a football fan. So. Right. And that's what the press
2: ran with, is they kept saying, oh, what about you and Randall? So she's going out with Arsenio, Straw, and Eddie Murphy, but everyone wants to know about Randall Cunningham, which I think is really funny. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he was a quarterback for the Eagles and the Vikings. And when asked about Randall, Whitney's response was, Randall, we're just friends. There's nothing intimate. Everybody wants to put me with somebody, you know? So that was her response.
3: Now, wow.
1: Can I just say um, that I think that the press constantly picks the it girl and then demands that they date. Mm. Because if you think about Taylor Swift in the early aughts or the noughties or whatever they called them.
3: The noughties?
1: (laughs) The noughties. But they... They focus on this, like it's the most important part of their personality is like who they're dating. Mm. So I think that this is a systemic issue. Also, I can't really say the word systemic very well, but I don't think this is new. I think it always happened, which is why if you go back to, you know, the forties and the fifties where who you were dating was sometimes more important than the picture that you had coming out and the studio system would hook you up with people. And then the studio system would hook you up with people if you were gay Mm -hmm. and they wanted you to still make money. It was Rock Hudson, right? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, and they called them lavender weddings and you would have to, you know, they would pair, uh, you know, a gay man with a gay woman and make them a quote unquote straight couple to make their viability sell, like their cash in availability higher because, you know, you, you would hate that they were married, but, you know you still had a chance.
2: And I remember this was, you know, to the nth degree when we covered Sammy Davis, remember he was basically told he couldn't date a white actress Mm -hmm. and the studio system stepped in and like paired him off with somebody and threatened him and it was, it was crazy.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah.
2: So let's get to that ever popular figure, the King of Pop, Michael Jackson.
3: Did they date?
2: Oh, well, they were seen out and about together. Now, Whitney always said they were friends. Michael corroborated that story. This is my favorite, though. So apparently there was a party in New York one night. Jackson was there, and he had an anxiety attack. So he hid in the closet. Ah. Yeah. So apparently no one could get Michael to come back to the party, so they actually called Whitney Houston, and she went down to this place in Manhattan, went into the closet with Michael, and apparently talked to him for hours and brought him out to rejoin the party. So there you have it. Take that for what it's worth. Uh Uh-huh. It's a great account. I just think it's a really funny story. So we were talking earlier about how Whitney Houston was tied or creeping up on number one hits, reaching up for that Beatles record. Well, guess what happened? She had two more number ones. And in 1988, with Where Do Broken Hearts Go?, a song that I got tired of listening to before going to work because I'd get out of my car, walk into the office, and everyone would look at me and go, Will, you okay? And I'd be like, I'm good. So that one went number one, and that gave Whitney, count them, seven consecutive Number one hits.
1: Audible, audible. She became the title holder. Yep. Audible. Okay. Which one? Where do broken hearts
2: go? You want to play "Where Do Broken Hearts Go"?
1: Audible.
2: Okay. I think uh, the demand.
3: Look, look, Will. Look, you know, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't. Quarterback. If she screams Omaha, there's nothing we can do about it. She's called an audible. Okay. That's
2: that. All right. Cue it up, DJ LD. So we have a special request. This is a long distance dedication.
3: Uh this
2: is Where Do Broken Hearts Go
5: ooh, 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 ooh. I know it's been some time, but there's something on my mind You see I haven't been the same since that cold November. Space, but all we found was an empty place, and the only things I learned is that I need you desperately so he. mm mm-hmm.
2: Scene. Okay, long distance dedication there for LD, I know you wanted to hear
3: that one. <laughs> oh, sweet, delicious 80s cheese, brother. Oh, it's delightful.
2: You love it and you know it. Now, this is again one of those times where Whitney seems to be cracking a little bit. She did a performance in Las Vegas in 87 where, according to her, I guess, people, they were saying that she was, quote, barely acknowledging the audience. Uh, the performance was very phoned in. And she was actually getting booze by the time she left the stage, which is hard Mm -hmm. to believe, yeah, at this point in her career. She had a rather, uh, shall we call it, tedious run-in with, you're going to love this, Boy George and Culture Club during (laughs) Yeah. What? In which Boy George called her, quote, one of the rudest people I've ever met. But all of this culminates in the year 1988, where she is going to go into a diva superstar battle with none other than Diana Ross. What? Yeah, I don't know if you heard about this. I know, Cheddar's excited. <laughs> so, as we mentioned before, Whitney was getting into this deal with TriStar Pictures, and they were actually proposing at the time, LD, you like where this goes, a movie version of Dream Girls. Yeah. Because Dream Girls, of course, had been on Broadway. Now, Diana Ross
1: and, had. And Eddie Murphy would go on to actually be in Dream Girls. He
2: sure would eventually, but that's many years later. Diana Ross already had some film experience under her belt. She did. Yeah, but
1: the Wiz was not that great. She did the
2: Wiz. She also did "Lady Sings
3: the Blues." Hey, hey, you! Hey, hey, hey! You shut your dirty whore mouth. <laughs> well, he's on down. you the
1: road. That was a good. That was one of the good. It's songs. great. It's not. No, Diana Ross. Michael
3: Jackson, Diana Ross,
1: Nipsey Russell. Nipsey Russell, you shut, you shut your whore mouth. Diana Ross was 32 when she did the Wiz. It, it was harsh.
2: Well, it's interesting that you say that because Ross instantly said she'd be the perfect fit for the, the role in Dreamgirls. Whitney got wind of this, and her response in the press was, well, then they would have to retitle it Dream Grannies. <laughs> oh! Yeah, snap! <laughs> Woo! Oh, everyone goes berserk at that Ooh. point. Yeah. Meow. <laughs> <laughs> uh. yeah. Yeah, I know, right? Tristar puts the whole thing on hold. In fact, it won't see the light of day until DreamWorks makes it a movie in 2006, starring, as you pointed out, Eddie Murphy, but also Jamie Foxx, Jennifer Hudson, and Beyoncé. Queen Bee, yep.
3: Yep, and then uh, Diana Ross apparently interns it. Oh, yeah, well, if you're it, they're going to have to call it Dream Bitches. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't find that in my research, but I'll let <laughs> <not. laughs> uh, Yeah, Just a uh, quote I just found, just now, in my head. <laughs>
2: It's a good one. Found <laughs> it inside of
1: his butt. In your bum, it's in me bum. I found it in my butt. Oh boy! Ladies and gentlemen, yes, of it. I'm so sorry. You see, my brother's uh. been chasing a serial killer for the last two weeks. Yeah. And it just won't stop.
2: Yeah. So. It never ends. Ah, okay. Oh. Okay, I'm good. So, a little more serious note. In June of '88, Whitney moves a little bit into activism. Now. This was interesting because in Whitney's contract, back when she first signed with Arista, she specifically excluded any country that upheld apartheid policies.
4: Okay. She
2: said she would not perform there. She was invited for Freedom Fest, which I don't know how much both of you know about this, but Freedom Fest was focused around Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday. It was organized by Tony Hollingsworth. Who was a British producer, he actually worked a lot with Peter Gabriel, he did a series of documentaries and decided he was going to launch this Freedom Fest at Wembley Stadium. Okay. And he was using the model of Live Aid to promote awareness of, you know, anti-apartheid. So Hollywood right. was actually put up a fair amount of his own money to do it, but then an anti-apartheid movement stepped in, furnished the rest. And really, the rest is history. It was one of the biggest political concerts at that time. It took place on June the 11th with, of course, Whitney Houston. I'm not going to name everybody there because I looked at the list. And if you look at the bands and the presenters, it's about 60 people. So two of the presenters, just keeping uh, three of the presenters were Whoopi Goldberg, Graham Chapman, the late Graham Chapman. Wow. And Stephen Fry. Remember we saw him speak? Hey. Yeah. And that's just three. The list is endless but here are just some of the musical acts again out of 60 there's whitney sting george michael the Eurythmics al green natalie cole late, tracy chapman the late natalie, the cole. natalie cole simple minds uh dire straits and one that ld loves ub40, UB40. I love oh yeah and but, that's just some of the names what about um Manfred Mann's Earthman. <laughs> uh, they were not present. I, I really tried to tie it in there. I'm like, please tell me they played Freedom Fest. Please, they please didn't.
3: don't have done that. It. A,
2: a, uh, uh, so I had to scramble a little bit on that one. Yeah. Uh, Whitney performed live. The songs included Didn't We Almost Have It All, which is another great song. Uh, love Will Save the Day, "Greatest of All," Greatest Love of All, and I Want to Dance with Somebody. Now, Whitney is about to step even more onto the world stage with these next two. In the summer of nineteen eighty-eight, what happens, do you ask? Well, I'll tell you. The Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. And the Olympics needed a theme. So who do you think they called?
1: Dogs Busters.
2: That would be awesome if they called Ray Parker Jr. They, <laughs> the world would be. Oh, open.
3: God, that would have been that would have been an epic Olympic theme. Which if Ray I, Parker Jr. in radio.
2: <laughs> if I recall, he was actually signed to Arista Records at one point.
1: No, 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 no. So hi jump. <laughs> Do, do,
3: do, do. So, i say, but he probably just would have Stole it from Huey Lewis, but um,
2: yeah, chances are. So, needless <laughs> to say, they call in Whitney with Narada, Michael Walden, Arista Records, and all the muscle that comes with it. And this song would actually go on to be one of the most significant of Whitney's career. I, I think it's arguably one of her best. Uh, it is put in the pantheon of her top 20 of all time. That song was released as a single in August of 1988, it became the Olympic anthem for the Summer Olympics, and that is one moment in time. We're back. One moment in time. Olympic Anthem.
5: <laughs>
2: I know, it's pretty awesome. It really is. And that was released on the Summer Olympics album. was the first single to come out. It gained major traction across the world. And it led to a live performance at the Grammys in February of 1989. And some actually consider that performance one of the best of Whitney's career. She performed that song at the Grammys. I don't know if any of you guys remember that. In the meantime, she I won. Two, yeah, she won two more AMAs, and this was going to be sort of the peak. So we're we're reaching the peak. I set this up specifically to uh, to sort of be the pinnacle at this episode. So despite Whitney's just continued success, she was still getting criticized. The crossover from R and to pop was something a lot of people kind of poked at, and they accused Whitney of quote selling out. In Living Color took it to the next level, though. Uh, in episodes of In Living Color, they actually lampooned Whitney, and they called her, this is their quote, too white, end quote. Mm. Now, Whitney's response was she just kind of shrugged and said, well, look, if you're going to have a long career, there's a certain way you have to do it.
1: She was still making music long after In Living Color was canceled. Uh, yes,
3: and, which was
2: on for a much shorter time than I thought.
3: Yeah. It, really one was of those a, it wasn't that long. It, it wasn't that long, and it was only funny for about two years. Yeah, pretty much. Because then the Wayans family left, and it sucked. yes
2: yeah, when funny. they were in charge, it was mm. gold. Whitney goes back into the studio in 1990 with a new set of collaborators. Sure, she brings along her favorites, the late Luther Vandross, Narada Michael Walden, Mike Masser, but she's going to throw a few names into the bag here. Uh, Perhaps you've heard of this gentleman, Stevie Wonder?
3: Yeah. Yeah. No? I'm I'm, I'm familiar, yeah. Uh, Another guy
2: named Antonio Marquis, but you know him better by his or LD, L.A. Reid.
1: <laughs> and another
2: okay. gentleman by the name of Kenneth.
1: Maybe you should say
2: it right. Okay. Uh, and then Kenneth Edmonds, better known by his mon- moniker, Babyface. <laughs>
4: yeah.
2: So you got Babyface and L.A. Reed in the mix, along with Stevie Wonder. Wow. They
4: Pretty much up. gold.
2: Whitney's third album was released in 1990. And this one is, of course, I'm Your Baby Tonight. The album would only reach number three so for Whitney this is a quote disappointment end quote but it would spend 22 weeks in the top 10 and it would go on to achieve quadruple platinum status and again this was viewed as a letdown in light of Whitney's other accomplishments great songs on that album I'm your baby tonight is of course the most well-known all the man that I need very well known miracle she did a duet with Stevie Wonder called we didn't know but I'm gonna move again in a different direction i'm gonna pick a naughtier song Mm. Mm, salacious Mm -hmm. this track was produced almost exclusively by ellie reed the subject matter is uh how can i put this gently whitney's lover calls her a different name while they're being intimate
3: oh this is a great song you know it yeah I love <laughs> yes, I love fantastic this song. song so we're gonna play it
2: 1990 this one is my name is not susan
1: can i ask a question yes, before you i can. play this do does salt and pepper refer to that yes they do okay they do
2: allude to that they song. do
1: allude to the song yeah. okay because that's you know that's one of my favorite songs yeah. of all time
2: so here is my name is not susan We are back. All right. I think that's clearly got La reeds and Babyface's fingerprints all over it. It just seems tremendously
3: so. And I, it's like we were talking as it played. That album was different than the first two. Oh yeah. The, the edges were just a tad rougher, mm. um, a little, little less poppy. I mean, this, it wasn't a radical shift, but it was definitely a different sound than than Because what she what she brought the first two was slightly R&B tinged pop music. Mm-hmm. And this one has the, the edges are just are, are a little bit harder on this album.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
3: In a good way. Yeah, in a good way. And like I said, it's not a massively radical shift. It's not like she came out and started yodeling or you know <laughs> anything, but it's it's but, but there are there are subtle but very noticeable changes and differences compared to the first two records.
2: Absolutely. And again, this one was considered the quote letdown. You know, she had such success with the first two albums that they're like, oh, it only sold 10 million copies, you know.
3: (laughs) Yeah, this one only, what'd you say? This one only went quadruple platinum. What a a bomb.
2: My apologies, right? (laughs) But that would not prevent Whitney from ascending once again to the world stage. That place in history was secured in November of 1990, but would come into existence on a date I will never forget. As a New York Giants fan, I will never forget this date. And TJ, you know it too. January 7th, 1991 in Tampa Bay. Yup. The New York Giants and the Buffalo Bills. Now, Whitney was slated to do the national anthem in November. It was actually right around election day. And according to the people at Arista, Whitney knew instantly what she wanted to do with the song. She said that she got inspiration from actually Marvin Gaye's version of the National Anthem, which he did in 1983 at the NBA All-Star Game.
3: At the NBA All-Star Game. Uh-huh. Oh, God, that's one of the best ones ever.
2: It, it's beautiful, yeah. Oh, I'm I, I back and listening to it. I was like, this is awesome. So she collaborates with a musical director named Ricky Minor. Those of you who may not know Ricky right yeah. away, you know him? Well, you, you know him. Uh, he actually went on to be the band leader for Jay Leno. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... They, who I'm
1: currently working. With. Who you are currently working? On. And if you guys would like to still apply for You Bet Your Life, you can give me an email at lindley at youbetyourlifecasting dot com, and uh, I'll send you all the info.
3: <laughs> yeah. So she's she's about to she's about to breathe new and exciting life into a 179 year old <laughs> song. Exactly. <laughs> that's almost impossible to sing well.
2: Oh yeah, and it's and that's the thing is as we get into this, we'll learn that that was actually one of the sticking points for this they changed the time signature so Whitney apparently knew what you want to do Ricky Minor runs with it they bring in the Florida Orchestra now yes let's address the obvious was it a lip-sync performance Yep, yes,
3: it was. It, now, was
2: it doesn't take away the fact that she still sang the damn thing <laughs> you know right. um now upon hearing the initial recording I actually didn't know this that this performance almost never happened it was submitted to the NFL Four days before the Super Bowl, they called back and said, we don't want to do it. It's too hard to sing along with. So that was, their, that was their, what they're going to say is they're out. Now, apparently, this is the story, and I love this. The phone was handed to John Houston, Whitney's father and manager. And they said, do you have another cut? And John said, nope.
1: How, <laughs> yeah. how, how was Craven about
2: I know. He's just like, nope. And so going yeah. into Super Bowl Sunday, they were a little nervous because no one knew how this national anthem would turn out. And there is no way anyone could have known how this national anthem would have turned out. This version, which we're going to close out the episode with, was actually released as a single and made the top 100. So for those of you playing along at home, that hasn't happened any other time except the 1968 World Series. Wow, hilarious. Jose Feliciano. Oh, wow! His version of the national anthem made the top 100.
3: Wow. Well, the the 19 uh 1990. So is this this is right before they started actually doing Super Bowl halftime shows? Yeah, yeah. yeah so the the halftime show was like literally nothing. And and my the, my favorite thing ever is that like in 80, it was sometime in the late 1980s. The halftime entertainment at the Super Bowl was up with people. <laughs>
1: No, there was actually a Super Bowl halftime show that was nothing but like a salute to Disney, and oh, then they, they would do stuff
3: like that, or they would have like local high school or college bands just come play, because which is a cool idea. But For I mean, I the
1: year they yeah. had figure skaters.
3: Well, this is the yeah, but this this was before MTV and uh, and Fox started counter programming against halftime. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, look. We Know you're not going to watch us, yeah. They're not at the Super Bowl, we're going to get our ass kicked in the ratings, but their halftime show sucks. And we're going to show like a special episode of Beavis and Butthead
2: <laughs> instead of or, Dick, it, or, or, or or or
3: or of In Living Color, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It did it one time too. And they started to, to, to tap away at the ratings at halftime, so that's why they, had, they went with the big name, you know, so the star studded uh shows at halftime,
2: yeah, absolutely. Now, just a few notes about this version before we play it and and close out our episode for today. Uh, This version was actually re-released after the September 11th attack. So the same version was released. Now, both times this song was in circulation, Whitney did not take any royalty payments. She donated the first round of royalties in the 90s to the U.S. military. And then in 2001, she donated to the first responders in New York yeah so that completely went to charity now on a more bittersweet note this song this is going to creep you out this is going to be the last top 10 hit for Whitney Houston what of her lifetime yep she will not attain another top 10 in her lifetime and so as we close out today wait, wait so, hold
3: on wait wait there's one I'm thinking of in particular that's about three years away no hmm yeah this is the last top 10 hit for Whitney that's interesting okay yeah
2: but more on that later before we get to the version of our national anthem i'm turning over to ld for the business no i'm gonna do the business okay i forgot ld can't speak So thank you all for enjoying this episode. Do you like this episode? Do you like what we're doing? Well, if you do, you can actually give us money. We have patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven if you enjoy our performance and want to keep the show going. We appreciate you as listeners and we love it when you interact with us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at, at rock and roll LT. On Instagram, where we have a lot of fun, rock and roll heaven LT. Facebook, rock and roll heaven pod. I am still not saying our website but if line, uh share ideas with us what do you think of this episode what'd you think of other episodes drop us a line and email we have rock and roll heaven lt again that's rock and roll heaven the letters lt at gmail.com check us out and other awesome music podcasts on the pantheon podcast network available wherever you listen to great music podcasts
1: that, or
2: crappy or crappy ones or crappy ones yeah
1: you were we were pretty good about that
2: I learned from the best.
1: Oh, who is she? Kill
2: <laughs> so we're going to close out the episode with the national anthem, but let's all say our goodbyes. We'll start with LD.
1: Hi guys. Thank you. And uh, hopefully I'll have a mouth next week.
2: <laughs> we hope so too. TJ, any final thoughts?
3: Yeah. Uh, there, there's, there was one thing uh, to mention about this. Uh, oh, first of all, bye everybody. Oh, oh. Um,
1: oh other thing. I forgot one thing too. I'd like to wish a happy pride Month to all of my friends and our family out there in rock and roll heaven, uh, any of the LGBTQ plus community, we hope you guys have a safe and wonderful Pride Month. Yes, happy Pride, everyone.
3: So the uh, but what I was going to say is the uh, the the set the the stage a little bit. Part of what made this performance so special and why it was so memorable. Hey, she. It's an amazing song, and she sings the crap out of it. Mm-hmm. But it, it was an especially poignant moment because the Gulf War had literally just started. Yeah, yeah. And I think, did they not do a flyover? Uh, They did.
2: They always do. They always
3: do, yeah. Yeah. I remember, right, there's a big swell of patriotic pride in general right about this time because the Gulf War has just begun. And then America's Sweetheart comes out and just slays the national anthem and makes it a top 40 hit.
2: (laughs) Which (laughs) never happens.
3: (laughs) Which is still an amazing thing to even say. But, yeah, so there's there's a lot going on here.
2: Yeah, I mean, Arista released it as a single. It was a single. (laughs) Uh, So we will say goodnight on that note. Thank you all for listening. We're going to close it out with our national anthem. And I will say the NFL did have a point there. They said no one could sing along with this version of national anthem. They were right. No one can sing it like Whitney Houston. And So we close out with the national anthem from Super Bowl XXV 1991 in Tampa, Florida. Here is the lovely and talented Whitney Houston with the Star Spangled Banner. And now to honor America, especially the brave men and women serving our nation in the Persian Gulf and throughout the world, please join in the singing of our national anthem. The anthem will be followed by a flyover of F-16 jets from the 56th Tactical Training Wing at MacDill Air Force Base and will be performed by the Florida Orchestra under the direction of Maestro Yaha Ling
3: and sung by Grammy Award winner Whitney Houston.